ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 will be my key text of examination today. I'm going to zero in on the first two verses of this chapter. And so if you have your Bible, turn there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And the sermon is entitled, Be Ready to Stand on the Authority of Jesus. Let me say that again. Be ready to stand on the authority of Jesus. I count it a privilege to be able to say that this is my 10th homecoming worship service here at Piney Grove. <laughs> well, to God be the glory, okay? Historically, this is when members will, will come and they will uh, convene and meet together, past and present. They'll come to convene at their home church and to remember and to reconnect. And as I was going over this particular sermon today, I, I had this thought, this question. What are we remembering? What are we remembering? Most of us, it is remembering uh, the past. It is reconnecting with old friends. And for Baptists, mostly it's eating, eating lunch together, right? And I thought to myself, well, maybe we ought to redirect our thoughts about homecoming for just a moment. So what is the purpose of a homecoming service? Is it something that we just put on the calendar once a year, we meet together, and it's, some churches don't even have homecomings, and sometimes they'll, they'll do it every other year or every two or three years or whatever it might be. And I began to think to myself, what is the purpose of a homecoming? We might say in a sport, sporting event or in a sport, sports world it would be a homecoming event, the directive might be to meet new people, it might be to network, it might be for teachers to get together and students to get together, to number one, display your school pride, to cheer on your home team, to, just, to, to cheer the athletics, to support some calls that might be there. Sometimes it might be the alumni from 20, 10, 20 years who might come to that homecoming service or whatever, whatever it might be, create new memories, to reconnect with old friends, and to have fun. I'm just old-fashioned but I also believe that you can reconnect with um, believers uh, and worship together. So. All right, so what is the purpose of homecoming? And I began to think to myself, some of the directives from a homecoming, high school homecoming, might also be the same purpose for a church homecoming. But mostly, we design it to meet together and to eat Together, That's our mentality. And so, my friends, if, if that is our mentality, if that is our mindset as to what homecoming might be, then I'm afraid that we have missed many opportunities over the years. Homecoming or any event at church should be about the purpose of worshiping Jesus, making much of Christ, and strengthening our walk with him. And you might say, we can do that at any time that we meet. Yeah. You're exactly right. We could do that at any, any time. How about those who are coming who may not know Christ? Or those whose walk with Jesus have been hindered due to sin? Has our heart and mind so consumed with the meal that will proceed that we are not thinking about our 
lost neighbors who might come or the person whose relationship with Christ might be strained or hindered in some way. Therefore, I submit to you that our purpose for homecoming must be Christocentric, meaning it must be Christ-centered, it must be worshipful, and it must be evangelistic. So if you wrote those down, it would be Christ-centered, worshipful, and evangelistic in nature. And I want to challenge you today to be ready to be able to stand on the authority of Jesus Christ at all times. So if you're writing those, if you wrote those down, I'll challenge you to write these down too. Three more things to write down. Three things that every Christ follower must be engaged in. Three things, and then I'll begin in 2 Timothy. Number one, every Christ follower is a theologian. You might say, well, no, I just know that Jesus loves me. That's all I need to know. But what if I was to ask you the question, who is Jesus? Or why do you know that Jesus loves you? The very second, the very millisecond that you open your mouth to explain that question or to answer that question, you become a theologian. Some are better at it than others. Some are more deep in it than others. But we are, are all theologians. Secondly, we are all interpreters. We are all interpreters of the Bible, meaning that as we read God's word, we interpret the meaning of that. The Bible means what it means. It says what it says, and it means what it means. So we are, secondly, we are all interpreters of God's word. And then lastly, the characteristic that resembles uh, what every homecoming service should be, as it is evangelistic, we are also, number three, we are all missionaries. We are all missionaries. It could be here. It could be at your next door neighbor's house. It could be in the next county over. It could be in the next state over. It could be somewhere in the world. But God has called us all to be missionaries. So we are theologians. We are interpreters. And we are missionaries. There are other things that we can add to that list. But if you were to jot those three th things down today, we're going to come and we're going to dip our toe back into those as we work through 2 Timothy this morning. But I want to start off today, and hopefully you have found your place in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, chapter 4, uh, second letter, Timothy chapter 4. I'll be reading from verses 1 and 2. And I want to ask you this question. I, was, I had the privilege of being able to preach last week at our home, we consider our home church, our sending church, at their Pastor Appreciation Sunday. They asked me to preach, which I was thrilled to do that. And I asked this question last week. I'm going to ask it to you as well. Okay. So I'm going to ask it to you. You ready? All right. Do you people of Piney Grove Baptist Church here in Williamston, North Carolina, farm life, do you affirm the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God? Amen. Amen. If you say... If you say yes, let me hear you one more time. Amen? Amen. Now, you know that the Bible that we handle and we hold is the primary revelation that God has given to us. And by now here at Piney Grove, you know that we affirm the authority of Scripture. In the Latin, we would call this the sola scriptura. It is by Scripture alone can we know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. 
This special revelation is how we draw our strength of who Jesus is and how we navigate through life. Hey, if I want to navigate through my life, where do I go? I believe in sola scriptura. I go to God's word. And so I draw my strength from this special revelation of who Jesus is and how we must be on mission for him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the Prince of Preachers probably one of my favorite theologians and pastors uh, of all time and preachers. He said this, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Read and visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Listen, I want to live in God's word so much that it becomes part of who I am and that I can't help but to live it out. I want, to, I want to live in God's word so much that I cannot help but loving my neighbor as myself. And I can't help but to glorifying Christ in all, of I, in all that I do. And, and, example, uh, and, and giving example of Galatians with the fruit of the spirit. I can't help but to be loving and kind and those things. So visit many books but live in the Bible. You'd be surprised how many People would claim to be followers of Christ who would have a distorted view of the Bible and even advocate that it is full of errors. They would say that the Bible is full of myth and errors, and these are people who would stand and say, I'm a follower of, of Christ. People, this is the state of the church that we live in today. This is the state of the church where people are divided more than ever. Well, discipleship and disciple-making is at an all-time low when churches across the globe are either plateauing or, or they are declining across the globe. This is the state that we live in today where people in the church have let the culture invade her walls instead of the church engaging in the culture. And there is a multiplicity of ways to, to show this. So again, people of Piney Grove who have affirmed the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. And if you have answered yes and amen to that, let's stand to our feet as we read from this second letter to Timothy. God's word says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, we ask you that you would bless the reading of this word to our heart and mind. And Father, as we navigate through your word, your infallible and errant word, speak to us today as only you can do. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ Jesus. But Father, and as you do so, that your name will be glorified and the church would be edified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this letter has been designated to Timothy as bears his name. As it bears his name, here is Paul's young son in the faith. But Timothy was led to the Lord by Paul. And 
Timothy, at receiving this second letter and the first, was the overseer at the church of Ephesus. Timothy was uh, also, his father was a Greek, Greek father and his mother was Jewish and is referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2 as Paul's young son in the faith. Many scholars and many theologians over the years, they give a testimony and they attest to the scriptural declaration and veracity that Timothy heard the gospel preached from Paul in Derby on his first missionary journey. And now Timothy, young son in the faith, at his very young age, he would eventually become the overseer at the church of Ephesus. Paul's first letter to Timothy sets the pace for his ministry at Ephesus under Timothy's counsel. Paul gives Timothy encouragement. Number one, he says, not to let others look down on your youthfulness. Just because a person is young in age does not negate them from serving in the Lord. It does not say because you're young you can't serve. In fact, we would encourage our youth and our students to pray to see how the Lord would use you somehow. And we could even invoke the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Don't let others look down on you because of your youthfulness. Serve the Lord right where you are. Serve the Lord and devote yourself to the reading of the word of God. Then he says to Timothy, I want you to chase righteousness, to chase purity, to pursue love, and to pursue gentleness. These are all things I think that all Christ followers should chase in life. Righteousness, purity, love, and gentleness. Many of us might have a problem with that last portion there, with the gentleness, right? To fight the good fight. And the second letter bears much of the same to Timothy. Has anyone ever seen Mike Tyson's earlier fights? I remember growing up and watching Mike Tyson fight. And he would come out with a flurry of punches, uppercuts. I mean, was so quick. I mean, that was his deadly, his deadly punch, an uppercut. When I read these imperatives, I thought of this flurry of imperatives. In fact, there are 25 commands, imperatives, before we even make it to chapter 4. And so I'm going to go over a few of those. Here are the flurry, if you will, of imperatives. Timothy is commanded to fan the flame of the gift of God. This would be his salvation. How many in here, without a show of hands, preach the gospel to themselves every day? And so you fan the flame of the gift of salvation. I'll also think of it like this. Fanning the, fanning the flame of revival in your life every single day. Fan the flame of the gift of God. That we are in Christ Jesus and bank upon that every single day of your life. To not be ashamed of the gospel. To be strengthened in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It is to entrust doctrine to faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. Who will entrust to others and so forth and so on. To share in suffering. To remind the church. To charge the church not to quarrel. Can I say that again? To remind the church not to quarrel. To be an approved workman who does what? Rightly handling the word of truth. Amen. And as you do that, guess what will happen? The next imperative is you will avoid babbling. You will flee youthful lusts. 
As you handle the word rightly, you will pursue righteousness. You will pursue faith. You will pursue love. You will pursue peace. peace. You will avoid foolishness and ignorant controversies. Now, during the pandemic, I have heard a lot of different controversies surrounding the pandemic that I will not catalog for you this morning. But if there was ever a time in history where these ignorant controversies filtered into the church, it was during COVID-19, just let me tell you. Avoid quarrels, be kind, teach, be patient, correct with gentleness. Continue in what you have heard. All of these commands in just the first three chapters in this second letter. So I want you to tell me, did Timothy have a pastor's heart? Did he have a pastor's heart, a tender heart to see people grow in their faith? One of the things I shared last week in our, their pastor appreciation was this, that the greatest thing that a pastor could ever receive as far as an appreciation would be to see the people grow in their faith and who Jesus is. To be able to see them grow, to be engaged in, in, in the word, to be engaged in small group, to be engaged in Sunday school, to be engaged in the tools that would help to shape one's life as a disciple. The beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1, I ask you this question. Much as I asked you about the infallibility of the word of God, I ask you this question. By whose authority do we stand? By whose authority do you stand? Well, the Bible tells us, according to Paul, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdoms. Stop there for a moment. By whose authority do we stand? It is Christ Jesus. Many of you may know the song. I don't think we have sang this in a long time, but the song is What a Day That Will Be. You know that song? What a day that will be. And in that song, I believe it is in verse 2, what a day that there will be. In verse 2 it says, There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, and no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, a glorious day that will be. All right, and as we sing this song, I reflect on Revelation 21, verse 4 and 5. The Bible tells us that our Lord will wipe away all tears of sadness. All sorrow will be gone forevermore. And then verse 5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so this is a wonderful promise. It's a promise. But there's also coming a day of incredible judgment. And that is a promise as well. This judgment is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing of. I remember I shared with you when, when Abram came and was baptized. One of the things we asked him was, um, what does it mean to be saved? And the one thing that he said that will stay with me forever is, well, I know that we are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God. And my friends, at the age of nine years old, that is, a theological, that is a theological answer if I've ever heard one. You are saved from the wrath of God and saved into relationship with Christ Jesus. Paul uses the word I charge or I testify or I command. As Christ Jesus is my witness. In fact, he is the only witness that matters in the scheme of all eternity. You could disagree with me. And I may be wrong. I may be right. But the only witness that I ever need in life 
The only true witness that matters in the grand scheme of eternity is the one who will judge the living and who will judge the dead at the end of this age. In fact, in the Greek, there is this immediate expectancy. There is this, this imminence here as to say that Christ is about to judge. And I don't know if the coming of the Lord is soon. We pray that it is. But there has always been this expectancy. Since the, big, since the cross of Calvary and since the resurrection that Christ is about to come and judge. So there is this expectancy of his return. Paul would say something like this to Timothy. And I believe that Timothy would be asked the same to Paul. Whose authority do you stand? Any pastor, teacher who stands in the authority of God's word would be asked this question. On whose authority do you stand? Well... Since you're asking it this morning, I'll, I'm glad that you asked. And I like to paraphrase sometimes, even though this is a word for word. I like to paraphrase sometimes to capture the main, the main idea, the big idea. And I believe any overseer, any pastor, any preacher, anyone who handles God's word would say, I stand upon the authority of the Lord Jesus, who has all authority given to him on heaven and on earth to judge those alive and those that are dead. That's my authority. Anyone who ever handles God's word in Sunday school, small group, from the pulpit, in small group, I believe that your knees ought to knock a little bit when you handle it. It is God's word. Your knees ought to lock just a little bit when you read from scripture. That's my authority. That's my truth, and he is yours too if you know him. There is coming a day when everyone will stand in the presence of Jesus, who is the righteous judge. My Bible tells me, whether you're saved or not, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. You will stand before the Lord and give an account. We will either, we'll either stand in the righteousness of Jesus or we will stand in our filthy rags in the work of our own hands which, by the way, will never do. So who and what has made Timothy an able preacher and pastor? Who has made any Sunday school teacher an able teacher? Who has made any pastor an able pastor? It is the word that is preached and the authority that is given by the Lord Jesus himself. See, when I ask you this question this morning about the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible... When I ask you whether or not you believe in the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, when I ask you that question, you understand that God doesn't need your affirmation for it to be true. He doesn't need my affirmation because His Word will not pass away and it will not return void. The Bible reminds us as followers of Jesus that our works will also be examined. As unbelievers stand before the Lord, we stand before the Lord too. And our works will be weighed before the Lord. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all... Now, I know that there are many Greek scholars in the world today, and I believe that they all agree on this one point, that this word all means all. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one might receive what is due for him, what he has done in his body, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Will our works be burnt up like wood, hay, or stubble? Or will they be grounded totally in the work of Jesus? 
If there is any church across America that is adding anything to the gospel, if you put a Jesus died on the cross and rose again and he forgave us of our sins, but my friends, that is on the verge, if not being a false gospel. And every person will stand before the Lord, every person that is breathing or who has taken their last breath living or the dead, alive or the dead, the quick or the dead, they will stand before the Lord Jesus. And Paul would say something like this, again, to paraphrase Timothy. Son, do you know that one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus and you will give an account of your ministry at at Ephesus? Do you know that one day that you will give an account of how you handled the word of God, Sunday school teachers? Do you know one day that you will give an account how you have handled scripture, how you have led people? You'll give an account. You know that it is by his authority, it is by his power that you even exist as an overseer here. And I, I mentioned that this morning. This is my 10th homecoming service, not for applause, mind you. I did so because I wouldn't even exist here unless it was by the authority of Jesus. There would be no overseer in place. There would be no pastor in place there would be no Sunday school teacher or deacon or elder in place if it had not been for the authority and power of Christ Jesus Paul would say something like this I was told the good news by fellow apostles who told me of Jesus commands to go and make disciples and authority has been given to him on heaven and earth and he has given me that authority now Timothy you have that authority now you go you be faithful in Jesus name May I say that to us? Go be faithful in Jesus' name. See, that is what I love about Paul's heart for Timothy and why we can read it today in the canon of Scripture for future leaders and future readers and future worshipers who we are. As followers of Jesus, we know who has been given the authority to preach and teach and witness. It's uh, part of the Great Commission. One of the greatest parts of the Great Commission is this little addendum that Jesus says at the very end of that, where he says, go make disciples, and he says this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. As a pastor, I will tell you very quickly, it isn't my authority. Is it? It's not my word that you follow. It's not my word that holds ultimate authority. You might come this morning, and you might be looking at your clock, and you might be saying, I wish that he would hurry up. When I was an unbeliever, I remember going to church and I would see the pastor prance back and forth and I thought to myself, what a foolish looking thing that is. It is the authority of God's word and the world that we live in today does not like this word authority. It doesn't like to be shown, even in a loving way, that they are wrong. The days of civil, public, formal debate they are long past gone, my friends, and these things have crept or invaded the church. I'll give you an example. I, I knew a man, a young man, who had an extramarital affair with another married woman. And the deacons and the pastor of that church, they knew about it, and they, you know, they prayed up, and they, they wanted to confront the man, and so they went to him. The man was serving in the church. He was serving in the church. According to Matthew 18, what does that tell us to do? You confront the person individually, and then you take a few, two or three with you, and you confront them this way. And then, and then if that doesn't work, you stand before the church. That doesn't work. You treat them as if they are unregenerate and don't know the Lord anyway. And so according to Matthew 18, church discipline, these men go to his house, and he plead with him, repent. You know, turn away from this and make it right. 
And the man looked at the deacons, looked at the pastor, and he said this. Who are you to tell me how to live? By whose authority do you tell me how to live? And I began to think to myself, isn't God's word that standard? Isn't God's word that authority? And if you cannot fall under the authority of Scripture, maybe if you cannot fall under the authority of God's Word and what it says, then maybe you don't know Him at all. Listen, church. There is pastors who stand in the pulpit every Sunday morning and preach and teach because they want you to grow in your faith. Sunday school teachers who open their, their uh, curriculum and they read it because they want to be well prepared and want you to grow in your faith. They know that the authority that they stand upon is King Jesus. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Here's the charge. To preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And if I was to say out of all of those commands, what hinges all those commands together, what brings them all together is my second point for today, which is always be ready. Always be ready. In fact, that verse reads, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. So think of those Mike Tyson kind of punches there. Once again, the Apostle Paul here is, he offers a quick succession of commands starting with preach the word. This word means exactly how it sounds, to be a herald by using the word of God. One can be a preacher. One can be an advocate for many things in life. But nothing is as important as being a public crier to the truth of Jesus. By the way, we probably don't think of us as being preachers, but in some way we are if we are a public crier or a herald to the truth of who Jesus is. Preaching can be done by anyone, but it takes a level of maturity. It takes knowing the word a little bit. The main business for Paul, the main business for Timothy, and every single pastor or overseer who ever stood in the name of Jesus is to preach the word. The second imperative in verse 2 is to be ready at all times. To be ready to preach at all times. So here it is, to be ready to preach at all times, but what is the mode of operation? What are we preaching? What are, what, is, what are we following? If we were to lay this out in a framework, what is the framework? What is the mode of operation of preaching? Why are we to be ready to preach? Well, number one, it is to reprove, which means to correct or to convict from errors. Now, in Timothy's day, there was something circulating that's known as the early days of Gnosticism. You might be saying, well, that's a weird-sounding word. Well, in a nutshell, Gnosticism was just simply, simply this, that the material world is evil or bad and that the spiritual world is the things that are good. So put that in the framework of the resurrection. If Jesus rose again from the dead in a full bodily resurrection, then to the Gnostics, that would have been some type of evil thing because he had on flesh. 
So yeah, there were those folks who were circulating. The beginnings of Gnosticism were creeping around. There were people who said that the resurrection of the dead had already happened. There were those, even in this, even uh, in Ephesus and in the church at Corinth, there were people who considered themselves as super apostles. I mean, they didn't have a big ass on their chest like Superman, but they were people who considered themselves more spiritual than the rest of everybody else and looked down on everybody else. And I would say that that is still prevalent in many churches today. They think that they're more super spiritual than everyone else, and they look down their nose at people. There's a heresy or false teaching circulating that the resurrection had already happened. Listen to these verses. 2 Timothy 2, verse 17 Amongst their, their talk, it spread like gangrene. Amongst them were Hermenius and Philetus, who had swerved from the truth, here's what they said, saying that the resurrection had already happened. So, Timothy, you are to correct this way of thinking. Much as like it was in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, or in, that ver in that chapter that said, I would not have you ignorant brothers about those who are dead. Then later goes on to say that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, much like that heresy or that uh, false teaching was there, so is this. Because they are upsetting the faith of some. They are upsetting the faith of some. Saying that the resurrection of the dead has already happened. And then he moves on from this reproving to a rebuke. This is a calling out of sin. Say so much like the deacons and the elders would have gone to this man's house and would have pleaded for him in some type to reprove, they would have rebuked the sin. But in this particular rebuke, there is a framework, there is a time frame and a flavor to this rebuke. In this rebuke, it is not like you know that it's wrong and you're going to sit on it for a few days. In this rebuke, it is immediate and it is sharp. It's like when you hear this false teaching, you react immediately and sharply. This rebuke is from someone who is mature and who is equipped to do so. But it is sharp and it is immediately. So I'm going to share an incident that might be helpful for you to kind of get your head around. All right, so... And if you have said this, Lord, forgive me, this is an attack on you. This, I'm not attacking your theology. But sometimes when people pass away, to deal and to cope with the way uh, uh, of, of losing a loved one, sometimes we will articulate our own theology in this. And, and sometimes we will, even though we have the Bible who tells us exactly how to be comforted by the Holy Spirit, we will begin to craft our own theology. And sometimes you might even read on Facebook. You might even hear somebody say, well, mama has passed away or daddy has passed away today and they have gained their angel's wings. Why on earth do we want mama and daddy to gain an they're angels' wings when they are part of the redeemed if they are in Jesus. Maybe it helps us to cope a little bit. But mama or daddy or whoever it might be, if they are in Christ, they are in a better position than the angels who, if they die, they strap on a pair of wings. That might be one example of an immediate sharp rebuke. And then from there, you teach which is the exhort. So you don't just like bring the hammer down on somebody. 
just to win an argument. You know, you're wrong, and boom, and here's why, and then send them on their way. No. In Paul's argumentation, once you reprove, once you rebuke, then you teach. Then you exhort. It carries the notion of edification and comforting. After the strong rebuke, you offer a word of comfort. And you offer the exhortation to abandon this unbiblical thinking and practices. Listen, we don't have all the answers, but the answers we do have comes from the word of God. And so we offer this to abandon unbiblical thinking because unbiblical thinking does not set our heart and mind up for rightful worship. How can we worship if we're thinking wrongly about who Jesus is? The motive and demeanor of the pastor here is to do so with gentleness and patience all while teaching. And I would say that this is great, great advice for any mature believer in Christ who encounters false doctrine or unbiblical lifestyles to preach, to be ready, to reprove, rebuke, rebuke all in exhortation and all the time being patient and gentle in doing so. You know, you don't have to be like the Westboro Baptist Church. If you don't know who that is, look them up. I'm not going to spend another minute talking about them, but you can look them up. It was once said by uh, Presbyterian pastor and theologian Greg Basin, who once said, men will not be won by the to the truth by scalding them. They should understand what they hear and then learn by perceiving why they are rebuked. Then Paul gives the reason why to preach and why to teach with such conviction. He says, why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. They'll stack their pulpits with pastors who will tell them it's okay to live in sin. They will stack the pulpit with pastors who won't exhort from God's word, who won't expound on scripture. You know, I went to a church one time, and I remember going to, into this service, and I remember I sat there for 40 minutes, and not one word was uttered from the scripture. They talked about how helpful they were to the community and how they went to help the firemen and how they went to help the police officers, how they, how they gave them donuts and coffee. And I'm thinking, well, where's the word? I'm hungry for the word. I'm not hungry for coffee and donuts. I'm hungry for the word. I want to know what does God have for me today? What word do you have for me today from God's word? So people, just like it was back in those days when Paul wrote this to Timothy, is such the same today. Have itching ears, accumulate teachers who will suit their own passion, who will pad them and pad their egos and will say it's okay to do what you want. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. They will wander off into myth such as the resurrection happened or such as that the resurrection of Jesus only happened in some spiritual matter other than what we know in Scripture. The Bible tells us in the book, uh, letter of 1 John, it tells us at the very beginning of that that the early apostles, they touched the Lord, they saw him, they heard him, they knew that the Lord Jesus has risen with a historical body, a real body. He didn't rise as a ghost or a spirit. And see, some of the myths that were beginning to circulate in the early church. And then he finishes, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, be stable in your thinking, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Be ready, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, always look for those gospel moments. Always have your ear turned towards truth. Brian Croft wrote a, a little 
treatise on uh, pastoral ministry. And Brian Croft reflects upon a time when he was visiting a, a church member who, who was about to be taken off of life support. He says one morning a, a nurse at the local hospital called for his immediate response and the non-Christ follower, the non-Christian spouse of one of his members was just, a mo- just moments away from, from taking her last breath. He had no idea what waited as he arrived. And he walked into the room and there in that room it was full of family members, about 50 of them all together. Of course, this is pre-COVID. A full room of family members, heartbroken. The husband motioned the pastor over beside the wife's bedside. And the man, the husband, had also suffered from a medical procedure to where he couldn't, he couldn't speak. It didn't take long as he moved him over to the bed to look down. It didn't take him long for him to see why he had motioned him over to the bedside. He wanted Brian to pray for his wife, pray for his wife as the doctors prepared to take her off the ventilator. 20 minutes before, Brian was in his office neck deep in study. And I've been there before, neck deep in your study. And now I was being asked to pray a final prayer over a dying non-Christian woman in front of her husband and some 50 non-Christian family members who were hanging on to a miracle. They wanted, they wanted the preacher, like a shaman, to come in and pray some miracle as to where she would get up off her bed and be healed. He literally had a few seconds to decide, be ready, what to pray in that moment. So Brian did what many pastors would do in that situation. They prayed the gospel over this woman. They prayed the birth, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ over this woman while other members were listening on. And by the way, as he prayed the gospel, this is the only remedy in a situation like this. Could God have healed this person? Absolutely. Could God heal this person in a spiritually way? Absolutely. I remember praying over Mr. Mr. Ron in this way. Um, And I remember going to pray over him. And the the deacons of Piney Grove gathered around Mr. Taylor. And I remember we began to pray for him one by one. We circled Ron and we prayed for him. And I'll never forget this. On his bed, he prayed his last breath. And I remember thinking to myself, If I can go, if I can pass on, that's the way I want to go. With people praying over my bed. Two different situations. One being the wife who was lost. And the other, a child of Christ slipping into eternity to be with Jesus. But the constant on both of those. The constant on both of those demands the readiness of believers. To be ready in season, out of season, whether it is to preach, whether it is to rebuke, whether it is to exhort. And I am thankful that God has given those opportunities to be used in this way. So my question is this, as we began to convene around the communion table, do you desire to be used this way? Do you desire to be used by God in this way? Do you want to be ready to share the love of Jesus at all times? And if And if need be, rebuke and gentleness and patience and love in order to be able to teach in a world that is antagonistic to the gospel, in a world that hates the message of Jesus. Pray for wisdom. 
According to the book of James, it says he will give you that wisdom. Now, the altar is going to be open in just a moment. And you might, this morning, want to pray as you commune. That might be your time before the Lord. That might be your time in front of the altar is with the communion. May I encourage you to pray something like this. God, use me for your glory. Shape me to be ready at all times.